Let me just dive in this morning. We are um, we're in our last week uh, of our series called United, and United is very simple. That we believe the church, uh, we believe the church united, walking in unity, uh, also in, in the person of Jesus together. The person of Jesus and the church united is the hope of our nation. We believe God wants to move. We believe God wants to move in our lives. We believe that Jesus wants to move and he wants to empower the church as a united force to be about the things that he's about and to see God's movement in our nation. And so we believe in that. We've been saying that unity matters. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, where it talks about this nature saying, hey, let there be no divisions among you, but, but be united, united in spirit, united in heart, united in purpose. And so we want to be a people who truly are walking in unity and united together by God's spirit together as one. And with that, we've been looking again, just the church at Corinth and division that defined them. And so what I want to do this morning, I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, some select verses and diving into chapter 4, as these verses speak directly to what we believe is, quote unquote, the problem causing division. And we believe that he then names the answer or what we would call the solution. So with that in mind, this can follow along on the screen, starting in verse three and four of chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter, excuse me, verse three and four of chapter three of First Corinthians it says, "You are still worldly, right? You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not?" Mere human being. So Paul comes in the morning and says, listen guys, you, you are, you are followers of Christ. You were spiritual beings, but you're living your life in such a way and quarreling is marking it, God, with, marking it where, where you literally are acting as men of the world, women of the world. Don't allow these divisions. He comes in verse 21, 23. No more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So he's coming in this moment saying, guys, the expression of boasting and the idea of this, it speaks to the pride and the ego of your own heart. But the reality is, everything that those people have, you already have because you're heirs of God and you're co-heirs with Christ. Everything that already belongs to them and belongs to Jesus even they now belong to you. Why are you quarreling and boasting over things that you all possess because of the work of Jesus in your life? The reality is you are now heirs of God. Everything that belongs to God, you were co-heirs with Christ that belongs to him now belongs to you. There's no reason to have division over who has what. You all have the same thing because of the work of Jesus. And he comes in the first seven verses of chapter four of first Corinthians and says this, this then is how you ought to regard, regard us as servants of Christ and regard us as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove the faithful. I carry very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. These are the important verses here. Don't lose this. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. 
It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from each other? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive, it did receive it. Why do you boast as though you did not? The phrase I want to begin with, and I want you to hear this, is regarding unity in the church. Every single one of us can be a part of the problem. Every single one of us can be a part of the problem around unity, but every single one of us is also a part of the solution. All of us have our pride. All of us have our ego. All of us have these things that can create tension with other people, but we then in that can be a part of the solution to bring unity. All of us, you, me, your neighbor sitting next to you and around you, we each have a unique responsibility in this season to grow into a proactive force for unity, specifically and mainly in the body of Christ, for it's a unified body together that then spills out from the church into the nation in which we live to bring about change in the world and the community and the nation in which we live. That's the heart of the United Series. So I want to catch you up. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, it names the problem. Paul comes in and says, there's division among you. You have these different factions around Apollos and around Cephas slash Peter, uh, around, around Paul, myself, and then even Jesus himself. We're broken up into these four factions. It's a problem. There's division and not unity, and he was troubled. Chapter 2, Paul reminds them, he says, guys, here's the humility which I exercise when coming to you. I didn't come with eloquence of speech. I didn't come in my own power, my nobility. I didn't come to promote myself. I came in humility. I came to you in the context of my relationship with you, only revealing Christ. I didn't come to you with eloquence of speech, even like all the orators that you're getting behind me talked about last week. I simply came acknowledging my weakness, promoting Jesus and saying it's all about him. That's the model I want you to engage in your own life. That's what I'm looking at for you. And then chapter 3 and 4, Paul diagnoses their issue. He says, the problem, just like it was in chapter 3 of Genesis, and the starting of all sin is the pride and the ego of man. It's the very thing that caused Satan to fall from heaven. It's the very thing that caused Adam and Eve to to fall into sin. And it's the very reason there's division in Corinth. And and I would say it's the reason that there's division and the body of Christ today, right? He comes in these moments and then diagnoses their problem. And he says, just seeing some of the language here in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, there is jealousy and quarreling among you. All of you know that jealousy and quarreling happens among those who are opposed to one another. He comes in in verse 21 of chapter 3 and tells them, guys, stop boasting, right? This is super direct. It's like, Jeff, stop boasting, bro. Stop doing that. It's like, okay, right? He's coming in the moment very directly saying, stop boasting in the moment. He's just recognizing their expression of their heart, right? We see in verse uh, four, 7 of chapter 4, he says, this is, why do you continue to boast? You can't even stop. This is going on and on and on and on. And then back one verse in verse 6, Paul says, guys, just don't get puffed with pride 
following one over the other, living in excuse me, living in division around these people that you were getting behind. The diagnosis of their problem this morning is what we want to look at, and then we want to dive into the solution. So the first piece, the first thing that we see, number one, issue that they're facing is pride and its ego. Pride and ego. This is the problem. The word used for pride here, and it's interesting to note that this word's only used in 1 Corinthians, except for one other time in Colossians 3. Every other word for pride in the scripture is different than this one. This is a unique word that was specific to the type of pride that they were experiencing in Corinth. And I would say it's the same that we're probably experiencing today. It's the word physio. Physio. It's only used, like I said, one time, and it means to be overinflated. You all can picture this. Overinflated, swollen, and distended beyond its proper size. How many of you have been driving on the road and you see a dead deer on the side of the road, right? It's been dead for several days, maybe about a week, and you look over, and the belly is massive, right? The belly is distended, it's swollen, it's overinflated because of the gases in it, right? You're like, do not touch, it's going to explode, it's going to smell really bad. Stay away from it, right? And that's what we're talking about here. That's the nature of pride. The physio, that's what they're experiencing, it's literally this idea of being overinflated, swollen, disintended beyond its proper size. It's overwhelming, right? It's a great descriptor of ego. It's a great descriptor of ego. Ego is always looking to be puffed up, to be filled up. And that's what's happening in Paul's mind. They are living life focused on self. They're living life focused on pride swelling up at every turn. And in this moment where they get literally in this, in this place of their own ego and their own pride, trying to one-up one another, they literally are living in division here in the church of Corinth. This is this tension for them. Pride swelling up disunity. And what Paul's saying is, it's making you not Christian. It's making you worldly. Living within division in the church with a swollen pride and ego that's easily offended speaks to this place of being worldly. Keller, who I took, a lot of this stuff is taken from Tim Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I encourage you to read it. It's like this. It's 46 pages long and starts on page 5. It's a super easy read. I took a lot of this from him. You think it's three sermons that he packed into one book. But I'm going to kind of take some of the pieces from him. So basically this morning, anything you don't like from my sermons, probably Keller, you can blame him. Here we go. That was a joke. Here we go, diving in. So talking about the characteristics of pride, the characteristics of ego derived from this word that we see in the lives of human beings. I believe Paul is speaking to in Corinth number one with ego. It's empty and it's always trying to be filled. It's empty and it's always trying to be filled. This idea, right, that I'm in this place and I have this, this, this vacuum inside of me as someone tell, affirming me, telling me I'm good looking, telling me I'm smart, telling me that I'm important, whatever it may be. And it's like this empty vacuum that's always trying to be filled. It's never satisfied. It's always looking to be filled. As Jorin Kierkegaard says this, this is from the book, it is the normal state of the human heart to try and build its identity around something besides God. He's saying in this moment, the ego is always trying to take the emptiness of the human heart, the struggle with its identity, 
And it's always trying to fill it with something other than God. That's what's happening in Corinth. There are people who are highly, this is the deal, first chapter says, they were unbelievably blessed. They were blessed in every way. They were experiencing every single gift of God's Spirit, but it was never enough. They always wanted more. Their ego and their pride was always looking for more validation, more filling. Keller goes on to say that spiritual pride is the illusion. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, to achieve our own sense of self-worth and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. Spiritual pride, again, it's the illusion, hey, that you can fill up your own self by friends, by people telling you you're popular, by people telling you you're good-looking, by people telling you that you're smart. Finding your identity in something other than God. He's saying, that's what we do. It's always empty trying to be filled. It's always looking for a sense of self-worth in anything that will give it this idea of worth. He also goes on to say, it's empty when to be filled, but the ego also hurts. It's easily hurt. You've heard the phrase, a bruised ego, right? The phrase, a bruised ego. An ego gets hurt when our identity gets challenged, When our identity gets challenged, right? They go hand in hand. An ego gets hurt when it's challenged. That's why on a daily basis, a daily basis seemingly, we're always hyper aware of how we look, how we are being treated, always wanting people to notice us. Everywhere that we go, this is super important. Look at me. Every single thing, ego hurts because we're looking for something to fill it. Because we don't know our identity. Like, what do you look to? What causes you to be filled in your identity? It's also the very thing that can be bruised and hurt when it doesn't happen. So in this, Keller says, people, this is important. You can process and chew on this one. If you don't like this one, blame Keller. says, people sometimes say their feelings are hurt. But our feelings can't be hurt. It's our ego that hurts. Someone challenges my sense of self and my identity. It's important. People sometimes say their feelings are hurt. You can't get your feelings hurt. It's only your sense of self. People challenging your identity. Let's just kind of talk about in the context of the season division, right? You have this ideology about something, whatever it may be, right? And you have it with a strong conviction. You believe and all of a sudden you speak it. Someone challenges it, right? And all of a sudden they can and you kind of talk back. You start to get upset in the moment, right? You begin to get upset in the moment and you begin to ask yourself, why am I getting upset that someone has a differing opinion than me? And I would say the reason is because your identity of being confident in yourself is being challenged. So you raise your voice because you're not confident in who you are. Your ego is being hurt. It's not your feelings. It's true in the context of your relationship with your children. It's true in the context of your relationship with your spouse. It's true in the context of your relationship with all of your friends. Listen, your friends don't hurt your feelings. They just bruise your ego. You are separating with people because of a bruised ego. It's ultimately about you, not about them. 
And so this, the ego by nature, it always views others through a competitive lens, through comparison, trying to be better, stronger, more valuable, more well-known, more popular, and it can't enjoy the life that it has been given. C.S. Lewis talks in this moment, right? And this is the piece. People who are struggling in their identity and their pride and their ego, ego are never satisfied in life. They may be experiencing their greatest vacation in their life, and all they're doing is complaining, they may literally be sitting on the beach looking out at these beautiful waves and all they can think about is their dissatisfaction in life. It speaks to a bruised ego, a broken pride inside of them. And so C.S. Lewis says this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich, clever, or good looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud of. This quote, let's see it for a second, even online. Like, I want you to see this quote. I want you to see it. I want you to see this idea of does this speak to what's going on in me and my own tension with self? My own issue of ego. Ego is desperate. To fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. Hear that again. Ego is desperate to fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. The ego is always busy. It keeps us from resting in our identity. This is the problem of Corinth and it's the cause of their division they're just not satisfied with who they are and what Jesus has already done, even though he's already given them everything. They're competing, and they can't even enjoy the relationship that they're in with Peter or Paul or Apollos or Jesus himself because all they're trying to do is compete to get to the next level. So Paul's solution, here's where it becomes, I would say, magical, but you know I'm getting at this, this beautiful piece. He comes in recognizing ego is insatiable. It's a black hole. We all, if we're somebody, we always have to then continue to be somebody. How many of you ever said the phrase, my gosh, that person, they're just trying to recapture those glory years, trying to recapture those glory days. They're just beyond their prime. We talk about it for those who are, who are in the, on the, on the athletic field. We talk about it in those who are in entertainment. How many of you ever watched someone who's trying to reclaim those years, having gone to plastic surgery, like you can't even recognize them. And you say, poor, this is God bless them. Bless their heart, right? That's how you live. Bless their heart in that moment because they're so past their pride because they're trying to recapture this identity of being somebody that's now taken because reality is they have no idea who they are. So their pride and their egos trying to fill themselves up because they're hurting because they don't know who they are. And so Paul comes in the moment and he just says, listen, man, this is terrible, guys. In these verses, in chapter 4, we begin to see Paul leading into a new reality. He says this, I read it earlier, I had you focus on it, verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you. I care very little if I'm judged by you. I care very little if I'm judged by human court. Indeed, right, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. He says, I don't really care if you judge me. I don't care if a whole human court judges me. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. I don't set my value of judgment even on my own self, 
right? My conscience is clear. So in verse 3, the word translated judge speaks to stamp of approval, being given a positive verdict. So what he's coming is like, listen, I don't look to anyone in this crowd to give me my stamp of approval and to put a verdict on me that says I'm good and that I'm right. I don't look to any human being to do that for me. In fact, I don't even look inside my own self and my own words to self to figure out to give myself my own stamp of approval or to literally validate myself and to judge me with a positive verdict. I don't look to self. Paul is stating clearly he doesn't allow anyone or anything outside, even himself, to judge him with a stamp of approval and give him identity. That is the answer to the breaking of pride and ego in our own hearts is not listening to the voice of others or listening maybe to the shame filled voice in your own head of how you keep on failing again and again and again. How many of you judge yourself with shame every single day that you don't measure up? And Paul says, I stopped listening to that shame filled voice years ago. He's not bound by his ego's need to fill itself, compete with others, or find value from other people's judgment of him. Stamp of approval. Verse 4, he says, just because his conscience is clear, though, just because he's not bound by any of that, doesn't mean he's innocent. It is true for him that he's left behind being motivated by the judgment of others. It's true that he lives, no longer lives in judgment of himself, living in the shame that he creates in his own mind. But that does not mean he doesn't get judged. He clearly said at the end of verse 4, It is the Lord who judges me. And I wonder how that makes you feel. Just at face value, just the words themselves without any, any unpacking, says you live under the Lord's judgment. And I wonder for you, does that feel heavy or does that feel light? When Paul says this, it's the Lord who judges me, he would say, and it's in his judgment where I find the truest freedom from pride and ego in the history of the world because the Lord's judgment, it's always perfect, it is always loving, and it is always supernatural. That last word is super important. It's his judgment it is perfect. It is absolutely 100% of the time loving in its expression. And it is absolutely 100% supernatural. It's not something that we can create, not something that we can give. It's only supernatural. Only God is able to do it. Only God is able to produce this level of identity. And for Paul, he would say, it's why I live life so free. What does it mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Key takeaways, key takeaways from Tim Keller's thoughts on this. I'm going to unpack these a little bit. Again, read the book. It's better than me. Number one is this. God sees Jesus's perfection in us. Like theologically, Theologically, like in like big, like the you know, like like heady world over here of like smart people, right? Like this is the piece in theology. You're like, if you can get this, 
it will change your understanding of identity for the rest of your life. Because what he says is when God, listen, when God looks at me, all he sees is Jesus' perfection. When we turn from our sin, we submit to the lordship of Jesus, we get saved, right? Jesus' perfection is imputed to us. How many of you ever use the word impute on a regular basis? Ah, nobody, right? But it's imputed to us. It's this beautiful word, meaning the virtue of Jesus, his perfection is passed on to us and how we are viewed by God. Let me use some like, just some like basic stuff. You give your life to Jesus and he, t- and all of a sudden God says, all right, here's the blob of perfection. I'm going to take the blob of perfection and boom, now it covers you. It's the blood of Jesus. And so I don't care what's going on in your life and what you've done and what you've seen and what you've experienced in your life, past or present or future. When Jesus looks at you now as a follower of Jesus, and he looks down, he looks at Anna Catherine, my daughter, and looks and says, all I see is the perfection of Jesus. That is the stamp of approval on your life. It's why the moment you give your life to Jesus, he can look at you and say, this is my beloved daughter, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. But God, there's no buts. You are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. Yeah, but you are my daughter, and in you I am well pleased. It's a unique piece. It's why it's supernatural, because God knows I can't do this well. And I know you can't either, because you're human. But it's supernatural, We are loved and accepted. We don't have to fight. Listen, we don't have to fight anymore to build a resume. We don't have to fight to have our ego stroked. We don't have to fight to have our name known. I don't have to live and die on your judgment of me or anybody else. I'm not going to rise and fall anymore on the own shame that I live with in the context of speaking and spewing venom to myself all day long about my past and my present and the things I'm struggling with looking to my future, right? In this moment, I am free of man's judgment and I am free from my own negative judgment of self. God sees me as his son. So with that, then there's God sees God's perfection or Jesus' perfection. Then we recognize God's verdict is always in. It's already in. Human beings live their life still trying to perform to get a positive verdict from Jesus. People live every day still trying to perform for God. If I just pray enough today, read my Bible enough today, if I just help enough people and serve them enough people today, if I just listen to enough worship music today, if I just do all the things that Christians are supposed to do every single day, if I perform for God. But he says this, my verdict's always in, there is now no condemnation for those who are already currently in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are now currently in Christ Jesus. You don't live under judgment of anyone or anything in the world. All you have to do now is live for Jesus and his freedom, free from the destructive voice of anyone else in the world, those who affirm you. And you. here's the deal. It is dangerous. It is dangerous to have someone affirm you and it literally make your day. 
Because what can take you to the highest point of your day will be the very thing that will take you to the bottom part of your day. That's the nature of how affirmation works. And so you have to look and say, what is, man, what's my poison? What's the poison for me? What's the poison that I look for? To, like, have you been around somebody who the only thing they have is their brain? And they get in conversation with you and they just have to act like they're smarter and know more than you because the only way they feel affirmation. Or people who get affirmed by you telling them, man, you're so tough. And then they just act tough. And tough is the very thing that separates people from having a relationship with them. Can we like name every single guy like over the age of 60, like up until this point of life, who's going to be tough, going to be the Marlboro man, can't have feelings. That's stupid. That's not biblical. Jesus wept. Again, and again in Scripture, he was super emotional. The most manly man of all Scripture is David, and he wept like a baby all the time. And he went and killed thousands in war. Man, he's a man, I'm like, ooh, I'm scared of that dude. He's like, oh, no, man, I just love God so much, right? Whatever it is. I mean, it's like, where's that identity? Where do you find it? Where do you find this affirmation to fill you? Paul's coming and saying, the verdict's always in. Stop performing. You're already loved. There's no condemnation for you. But here's the point, verse 4. But you still have to listen and follow God. Listen to God's voice. We aren't judged by anyone in the world, including myself. But he says, I am judged by the world, by God. But do you see it now as a positive? I am judged with a verdict now from God. There's no condemnation for me. And I'm viewed with the blob of perfection. Blob's a horrible word, but you know what I'm getting at. You just see like, Bleh. just put on. It's like, it's a good thing. It's a good, like, yay, whatever it is, right? It's a positive. Right there, he sees you perfection. But here's the point. He says, Paul says, but I, this is important. This is the caveat you're waiting for. But he doesn't think he's even innocent. Paul's one of the probably top four leaders in the history of the world. He started a movement among Gentile Christians, which unless you're Jewish, you're all Gentile, and you afford your Christianity today to the movement and the ministry of Paul. Like he's one of the top four leaders in the history of humankind. And he said, man, and he lived this beautiful life. He says, but man, the scripture says, I am the chief of all sinners. He's sitting there going, guys, I'm not innocent. Like I, I know my heart. I know the temptations of my mind. So you're like, oh, tonight he's a temptation. Oh, I'm fighting those things right. Last night, it's like, I don't know about you, but like after 11 p.m., it's like temptations like double up for some reason. I have no idea why. It's like, like that last night, 11 o'clock, oh, whatever it is, right? Like there's these temptations to have my ego stroke, to be filled, to whatever it may be, to feel good about myself and to do something other than love Jesus, right? He's like, I'm not immune to those things. I'm not innocent, I recognize the sins that are natural for me to struggle with. I recognize the temptations that I face on an everyday basis, right? But I am judged by God, and his judgment is grounded in his imputed perfection, his verdict of no condemnation, and that's where I live. And so in this, Paul viewed himself as this person who struggled with sin. But the shame of these struggles did not define him. The shame did not cripple him. In fact, he didn't even let shame define him. He embraced conviction. He did not embrace condemnation. Condemnation says you're in sin and you're terrible. It always goes to the worst. Conviction says you're in sin, 
but you are perfect in the eyes of God and there is no condemnation for you. Now step up to who you're called to be as a son and daughter of God who already lives in your identity is loved and judged, but perfect in his eyes. Tim said it's good, so it's good. <laughs> Tim speaks, I listen. And so in this moment, right, he listened so let me say what it looks like. I mean, this kind of gets super practical. It looks like today or tomorrow when you find yourself struggling. All of a sudden, man, temptation comes, sin comes, maybe you give in. And condemnation says, oh, look, now you're just going to be down here forever and never live. And the conviction of being perfect in the eyes of God says, no, no. Listen to the voice of God and remember who you are. Remember the voice that says, I've already made you perfect Don't believe the shame of the enemy. Don't listen to your own voice. Don't listen to the verdict of the world around you passing judgment on you. Don't listen to them trying to get your ego stroked and your pride back up and your place of affirmation. If I'm beautiful again, because someone said I was beautiful, right? Ladies, you don't find your value with men flirting with you. That takes you nowhere. It destroys you. Men, same for you. If you look for women to flirt with you, to build up your ego, then you You have bought into the lie and have forgotten who you are in Christ. This is how we conquer temptation. Paul, Tim Keller says, like Paul, you can say, hear this. You can say this. I don't care what you think. In fact, I don't even care what I think. I only care what the Lord thinks. We can say that with great grace. I don't care what you think. I don't even care. I don't even care what, God, what people say. I only care what the Lord thinks. I listen to my dad. I listen to the father tell me, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I am well pleased. The verdict is always in. You are free and you are loved. That temptation or sin you were wrestling with, listen to me, God would say, I judge it to be dangerous in your life. Turn from it and follow me. It will hurt you. I won't. I don't have to perform to get a positive verdict. You don't have to perform, Steve, for me anymore. You don't have to have your ego stroked by anything in the world. I am enough. The positive verdict is in. It empowers me to acts of righteousness. Here's where we're going to end this morning. Alex, you can go ahead and come up. It's in this place, this glorious freedom of the judgment of God. Your glorious freedom is found in the judgment of God that allows you to die to ego, stop inflating your pride, to stop needing affirmation from others, to live different and to live separate and to not make a name for yourself and die to the shame of your own thinking and live in the beauty of God's beloved child. And so with this this morning as we end in worship, I invite the ministry teams to come forward. As we bring the lights down, I want you just to focus, again, your attention on Jesus. I want you to hear these things as it relates to then taking steps into this. The reality is it's only in being with Jesus and listening to his voice, whether it's in reading scripture or just being with him and meditating on his goodness, listening again and again to the words that he is for you, that he's created you as beautiful in his eyes, as your son, as imputed righteousness. It's only as we listen to him 
that the lies of the enemy begin to dissipate. It's only by being in the word and allowing his truth to wash over you. And I invite you this morning, one, to get prayer. I'm going to pray that God's grace would move. I'm going to pray this morning that God's spirit would speak his verdict over you. You would be awakened to his judgment. It's actually a judgment of spoken truth. A verdict is in. Take time in worship as Alex sings to allow God's grace. Because here's the point. You can't do enough and you can't perform yourself to engaging this in depth. It's only by listening to the voice of Jesus and allowing its truth to wash over you. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask this morning.